Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Let me pray. Father, I pray for attentive ears. I pray for open hearts and humble spirits as your spirit ministers your word to us. And for your speaker, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive me for the sins of mine, which are many, and that it would be your words and your gospel and not my words or ideas that would come forth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. What do you think success is? For many of us, even here at a chapel in CIU, to be successful really means to be rich, right? The idea that we can do what we want, when we want, and let's be real, with very little repercussion, very little threat of of consequence, right? Others, and I'm looking at you athletes, success is winning. All else falls to that idol of victory. And when you lose, depression can kind of settle over your head, can't it? Of course, the problem with winning is eventually you'll be replaced. Just think what's going through Tom Brady's mind as he's retired for the first time at least. We'll see. A third type of success is often found in power. You want to be a leader in your field or your home or your family, the one making all the decisions, right? When I resigned many years ago from a bookshop in Northern Ireland, I returned to the store a few months later to discover, to a little bit of my dented pride, they hadn't gone bankrupt. <laughs> in fact, not only had they not gone bankrupt, but they had, in fact, replaced me as a seller of books. It was a humbling moment to realize that for all the good I did in that, in that location, they didn't need me as much as I had wanted them to need me. And that's kind of the problem with earthly success, isn't it? Earthly success is temporary. It's fleeting. And often it ultimately causes problems, doesn't it? Just think about that for a second. Leaders who become powerful, they're often filled with paranoia. And they're willing to resort to corruption to maintain their own power. Go on to the news and hear the horrendous things men and women will do just to preserve their wealth. And winners, even CIU athletes, you'll eventually become losers. You play the game long enough. And if that type of thing is your definition of success, let me humbly tell you that everyone seated here today is a failure, that I'm a failure, because these are earthly standards And they are temporary. And we all know this kind of success doesn't last. We all know that. We kind of hope that's not true for us. But we know that it is. So it's a good thing that Christians have a different definition of success. Earthly success is temporary. It's fleeting and ultimately disappointing. But godly success is eternal. It's guaranteed. And it's grounded in the work and authority of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is not simply airy-fairy Christianese to make us feel better about the fact we're all failures. This is the hard truth of what it means to be a Christian, because every single person in this auditorium today is a failure by the earth's standards and by God's holy standards. 
And so we're looking at the authority of Christ over church history this morning, and the answer that I want to give you today is that the message the church clings to in every single age is that because of Jesus, our failure isn't fatal. Our failures do not ultimately disqualify us from serving God, from doing what He calls us to do, nor from knowing and trusting what He has declared and said about us. The things that you and I do in this life, they have very real and very tangible implications for eternity. And we see this when we look back at the men and women who took the stand for the gospel all throughout church history. They've shaped us. And yet those heroes that we have from church history, they too were sinners who lived sinful lives, who failed. And yet they were still able to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. Not because of who they were, but because of what they believed in, ultimately because of who they believed in. The authority of Christ over the church, empowers believers in the past and empowers believers like you today. And so this morning I want us to look at and consider some examples from church history to try to understand how the authority of Christ over his church shapes us. What is it that empowers our brothers to hold fast the flame even though they were going to be beheaded by ISIS? What strengthened our sisters who were kidnapped in Nigeria just because they were Christian women? What upholds believers in China today when their churches are forcibly closed by the government? How do Christians in every age withstand the fires of injustice to be beaten, tortured, and killed all across the world, all across the ages? How will you stand firm? when that moment comes. So let's come to the Bible and see how our failure isn't fatal, to see how we are called to live and serve our God in this life to impact eternity. Paul writes to the church in Corinth these words. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So this morning, the first thing I want us to see is that we must find forgiveness in the finished work of Christ. We must find forgiveness in the finished work of Christ. And we're jumping into Paul's letter to the Corinthians here at a crucial point. He's been correcting the church on their behavior, because they are acting and behaving like the world around them. In fact, in some places, worse than the world around them. And it's into this section that Paul has his mic drop moment, his truth bomb moment, and he explains his rationale like this. We're all sinners. When we go to court, as in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, or when we get into heated exchanges on social media, or even, dare I say, the CIU app, we're really appealing to our own sinful pride and nature. And Paul says that the logic of the world, living and operating under the rules of this realm, the unrighteous world, will lead to exclusion from the kingdom of God. Who are these unrighteous people? 
They are the sexually immoral. They are the idolaters. They are the adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, those who steal, those who are greedy, swindlers, revilers, drunks. And needless to say, but I'll say it anyway, that's not an exhaustive list. It feels long enough, doesn't it? But it could be a, a whole lot longer. Can anyone in this auditorium raise your hand and say, you don't know what it's like to be greedy? When I sit down at a Mexican restaurant and they bring one tub of chips and one small vial of salsa and my wife's sitting across the table, I'm like, and where's hers? <laughs> I know what it's like to be greedy. Can anyone here raise your hand and say, you are unaware of how to lust? That you have not made an idol out of a person or a device or book or idea or career or your grades? Of course not. And that's terrifying, right? Because we know that we're guilty of many of the things on Paul's list. And Paul says, such people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And such was the case of a guy called Augustine of Hippo. Augustine was an intellectual who lived in North Africa. He was raised by a Christian mother but a pagan father. And before he moves to the city to go and get education and to advance his career, his mother takes him aside and gives him some really good advice. She says, Augustine, you're smart, but you're stupid. Do not go and commit and engage in sexual intimacy before you're married. And for all that's good and dear in this world, do not lead another man's wife into adultery. Good advice, right. I suspect most of you had some kind of talk like that before you came to CIU. How does Augustine say he responds to his mother's concern? He says, this was mere womanish advice to me. That's his words. And as soon as I could, I went on my way headlong into such sin. He soon became addicted to sexual sin. He was involved in liaisons all across the Mediterranean where his career took him. And then in his confessions, he gives this illustration of the depth of the depravity of his sinfulness. Do you know what he did? He stole some pears. Bet you weren't expecting that. That's wicked right there. The reason why he says that's wicked is because he didn't need the pears. He didn't want the pears, and in fact, he had better pears in his own garden at home. What he wanted was the thrill of stealing. He wanted the joy of sinning. He was, by his own admission, a fornicating, sexually immoral, thieving, idolatrous lout who spurns the wisdom of God for the philosophies of the Greeks. It's like he's looking at 1 Corinthians 6 and saying, I'm going to do all the things. He failed. Or another example, John Newton from church history. John Newton was an Englishman. You may have heard of him. He writes or penned the hymn Amazing Grace. I suspect most of you know that before Newton wrote Christian lyrics, he sold slaves. He was a violent, aggressive man filled with lust. And in his own words, he says, I sinned with a high hand and I made it my study, my intention, my purpose to force or compel other people to sin with me. He was immoral as a sailor, arrogant in his desire to do what he knew was wrong and involved in the slave trade. Both of these men are deep-rooted in their sinfulness, and we can see ourselves in them. And I can tell, I can read your mind, you're saying, well, we're not slave traders. 
Well, actually, let me push back and say we are. When we look at pornography, when we buy cheap clothing from sweatshops in Asia, when we rely on devices that rely on cobalt mined by children in North Africa, the point is that such behavior is unrighteous. And Paul says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's to be done? Well, thankfully, Paul isn't finished. He says in verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He humbles the Corinthian church after this big list of sins and says, and that was you. The church, the church of Corinth was filled with people who had been addicted to lust, who had worshipped idols, who had committed adultery and engaged in homosexuality, who had been drunkards and thieves and swindlers, just like your church, just like you and me. But something happened. They were washed. They were sanctified, which means to be made holy. And they were declared righteous or justified by the work of Christ. The work of Christ in the cross is where our sinfulness was dealt with, and it's how we're able to find the forgiveness that we know we need. And I'm no fool. In a room this size, with this many people, it's likely to someone here who's reading this list and saying, well, that's, this is still me. I'm not washed or sanctified or justified, or I don't know if I am at least. If that is you and you're drowning under the weight of your own guilt and shame, then you can learn from church history, men like Augustine and John Newton, to find forgiveness in the finished work of Jesus. Look to the work of Christ on the cross. In your place, he died the death that you and I deserved. Your sin doesn't define you anymore. He was sinless, yet he died for your failures. He was holy, yet he died for your wickedness. He was good, and yet he died for your evil. And mine, are you trying to lift yourself up into holiness, into forgiveness? Are you simply wearing a mask, hoping you can get through CIU without being caught out? Sin is powerful, Satan is clever, and we are weak. You can be washed, you can be sanctified, and you can be justified. Let me encourage you this morning, speak to someone you know and trust. It could be a professor, a friend, an RA, whoever it is, but you can know that you are forgiven. Augustine says it like this. After reading a section of Romans, he says, it was as if a light of relief flooded all anxiety from my soul. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. Newton and Augustine were proud, confident sinners. And despite that, they found forgiveness in the work of Christ. If you're sitting here and you're thinking, these heroes of the faith, well, they're heroes. I'm worse than that. Yeah. They'll tell you that as well. They'll say, we were worse than you even know. But they'll also tell you that God's grace is even greater than that. We're called to find forgiveness in the finished work of Christ, but we also learn through church history that we are to find freedom in the faultless wisdom of Christ. Let me read to you from Psalm 107, two verses, the more will be on the screen, but some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. I'm going to focus on verse 11. 
These rebels were sitting in prison, probably a real prison. They were probably captives of war. And in this condition, verse 11 says they were there because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned his counsel. Do you hear the kinds of sin that is fundamental to their behavior? It's intellectual and spiritual snobbery. It's pride. The root of their crimes against God was that they not only ignored what he said, but they spurned his counsel. It's arrogant intellectual pride, and it has consequences. So let's think about this imprisonment, because it's not just physical. And I want to do so through the eyes of another hero, through Martin Luther. Luther was a good, a passionate, and enthusiastic medieval Catholic monk. But the church of his day had added a lot a lot of rules and regulations to what he and the gospel revealed in Scripture. The church claimed authority that Scripture and Christ hadn't given to it, and that authority had effectively replaced God's Word and God's King. And Luther, who was a good monk of the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval era, he was devoted to this church and all of its rules and regulations. And yet, despite that, what does Luther say about God? Despite being a holy monk of the church, he says this. After reading Romans 1.17, he says these words. When I heard these words, I was exceedingly terrified. If God is righteous, he must punish sin. I did not love, yes, I hated this righteous God who judges and punishes sinners. Do you hear that? Martin Luther, the man who we know in a way started the Protestant Reformation, he writes that he hates this God because God judges sinners and Luther knew he was a sinner. For all of his intellect, all of his knowledge of the Bible as a priest and theologian, the church had so corrupted the truth that he didn't even know that God was a God of mercy. And our world is like this today as well. As you leave CIU and mature and go into the world, you'll hear people on YouTube, on TikTok, in classrooms, even in church pulpits, and they'll say things like this. They'll say, I don't need the Bible or the church because it's it's between me and Jesus. Or even more dangerous, they'll say things like, those stories in the Bible, well, they're just that, they're just stories. They're moral examples. After all, it was written in a time when they didn't have the science that we have, so we're more advanced. We don't believe in miracles and resurrections. Jesus gives us a morality to follow. That's what's really important. And I want you to get this. Those voices aren't atheists. Those are the voices of people who claim to be Christians. And what are they doing? They're doing the exact same thing as the prisoners in our psalm. They're rebelling against the works of God and spurning his counsel in his word. And that leads to enslavement. But Luther goes on to teach us that Scripture is how God reveals Himself. Rather than rejecting or replacing or rewriting the Bible, what Luther tells us to do is to study it, to pray through it, and embrace what God has said. He tells us on his own words, listen as he writes to one of his friends, he says, Learn Christ and Him crucified. Despairing of yourself, learn to pray to Him, saying, Lord Jesus Christ, You are my righteousness. The reason why Martin Luther could stand up against the might of the Holy Roman Empire and the pressures of the Roman Catholic Church was not that he was a better thinker or a greater theologian. 
It was because he knew and trusted the scriptures contained the true words of God. And he rediscovered a gospel which had been obscured and hidden by the traditions of men that had been embraced by the church. He was freed because God's word revealed God's mercy in God's king. And you too can know this intellectual freedom which is found in the power of God's word, not because of the strength of your faith, not because of all of your good works, and not because of all your A's in Bible class or theology class or Greek class, and not because you grew up going to church, but because God reveals himself to even you when you read and pray through his word. Dear brother, dear sister, young and old, reflect on your condition. Your king has purchased you from slavery. He has washed you in regeneration. You are reborn into his kingdom. You are new creation and indwelt by his very spirit so that his word will make sense to you. Christian, this morning, rejoice because you are a blood-bought, spirit-indwelt, God-elected, regenerated, renewed, justified, adopted, sanctified, persevering possession of the king and an eternal citizen of the kingdom of God. Because God has saved you from enslavement to this world by and through his king as revealed in his word. Like Luther, such Christians can set the world on fire. Like Luther, the authority of Christ means that we can stand up for the gospel in the midst of a world bent in our destruction. Church history shows us that when Christians are captivated by this gospel of freedom, they can turn the world upside down. Not because we control our government, but because Christ is the king. Not because we are strong, but because Christ shelters us. Not because we are wealthy, but because Christ has paid our debt. Not because we are the smartest, but because we believe in the God of all wisdom. Most of us here aren't going to be called to start a reformation. But all of us are called to be faithful and obedient where we are with what we have been given. Church history is full of men and women like Luther, but it's even fuller of men and women like you and me. Men and women who simply trust and accept the words of God, not to give up being intellectual, but to accept that God is wisdom. And finally, we see thirdly, we must find fortitude in the final authority of Christ. Because we, like Augustine and Newton, we have failed because we've loved sin. We all know this. And we know that we've failed because we've believed the lies of this world, just like Luther. We believe the lies that sexual conquest or amassing great wealth or being powerful in our fields or winning games or getting all A's, that those things are really what makes us successful and happy. But they don't make us holy. The authority of Christ shows us that our failures can be used by God for his glory and our own edification. And yet, and yet I know of people in this hall today who are plagued by guilt, by doubt, by shame, and perhaps even struggle with depression. Depression. 
Yes, we can look at men like Newton and Luther and Augustine and say, well, they did great things in spite of their sin, and, and so why can't I stop sinning? Why can't I stop struggling? Why can't I be and do better? And this brings us to another very important area that we have to acknowledge where Christians struggle and an area that church history can really teach us. Because many of us struggle with shame and depression. Now, I want to be very, very clear in this. Struggling with depression does not mean that you are a failure or a bad Christian. But when we struggle with depression, we believe the lies that our depression tells us, that we are worthless, that we are unlovable, that God wouldn't want me or perhaps even that God wouldn't save me. The authority of Christ over church history speaks to this. Why? Because men and women of the faith have gone before us are just that. They're real men and real women who really lived experiences, just like you and I. They struggled. They had very real seasons of depression. And statistics are coming out every week that your generation is struggling with depression on very high numbers. The pandemic, social anxieties, social media, the need to succeed, being pushed by the media and family, they all create the perfect whirlwind that says, I just can't succeed. I just can't do it. And so depression inflicts the Christian just like it can inflict anyone else. One such Christian from church history who struggled with depression was a contemporary of John Newton, who we've already met. Together, these men wrote many hymns and poems about the goodness of God. But William Cooper was a man who struggled with depression and mental health issues all his life. At times, he even attempted to commit suicide because the pain of his depression and the lies his depression told him were so deep. But John Newton helped Cooper. Together, they walked through the lies that Cooper's depression told him. Cooper believed he was lost. He believed that he was too sinful, that he was unsavable. And Newton reminded him over a friendship that lasted over 30 years that God's grace was enough. And praise team and praise teams and all of that, it's great to sing modern contemporary songs because they unite us with the church in our present, but don't neglect hymns because they link us to the church of the past. Another famous Christian, you may have heard his name, was Charles Spurgeon. He struggled with depression. In his own words, he says frequently, I find myself frequently depressed. I know perhaps as well as anyone what depression means, what it is like to feel myself sinking lower and lower. He would enter bouts of depression that could last for months on end before they finally passed away. In those moments of very real depression, what did Cooper and Spurgeon have to cling to? Spurgeon tells us this, Yet at the worst, when I reach the lowest depths, I have an inward peace which no pain or depression can in the least disturb. The cure for that depression is to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and His infinite love in dying upon that cross to put away all my transgressions. Now, I want to be clear again. Just because you become a Christian does not mean that you will not struggle with depression. For some people, there may well be a miraculous freedom and redemption. But for men like Cooper and Spurgeon, there wasn't. 
For others, like you and I, that might be lust or anxiety or doubt or anger that continues throughout our lives. But for Cooper and Spurgeon, they struggle with depression. So I'm not promoting here a childish or cliched response that just believe more and you'll be fine. If you need help, seek it. But that being said, one way to combat the lies of depression is to do what John Newton did for William Cooper. He reminded Cooper that Christ's work was final. Hear the words of Paul once again, this time from Ephesians. Paul writes in verse 16, I do not seek to give... um, Sorry, one slide too far. I do not seek to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Peter, or sorry, Paul tells the Ephesians to believe that they may know the hope which is theirs. Christ's final authority is that he's been raised from the dead and enthroned by the Father. That means that sin has been defeated, death has been defeated, and yes, depression has been defeated. And because of this, you have been redeemed and rescued. So when you are struggling, listen to the man like Cooper. Sing his hymns. Listen to the man like Spurgeon. Read his sermons. Let them teach you and disciple you because, yes, we are sinners, but that is not the whole story because the final authority of Christ our King tells us that we are made new. So you are not defined by your sin, your past, or the lies that you tell yourself or that Satan whispers into your ear. As a Christian, you're not defined by your sin, but by your King. All the shame and the grime of the sin that we bear, He bore it for us. In our stead. So strengthen yourself daily by preaching this to yourselves every single day. Christ's authority declares that you are forgiven, that you are freed, and that you now live in light of his rule in your life. Fortify your spirit with this truth. Because this is how Christians throughout the ages have been able to stand firm in the face of persecution. And it will be the same for you as well. So what about you? Such men that we've looked at, and there are women, many, many women as well, who are celebrity heroes of our faith, and they had big, public, visible, and painful failures, and the list could go on and on and on. All were failures, all were sinners, but their failure didn't have to be fatal to their soul, because God's grace is greater, and Christ's work is final. So what about you? What's your failure? What will be your story? What can you boast about in Christ redeeming you from? Church history isn't over. You are the next generation in this long, long, long line of blood-covered, sin-forgiven, failure-overcoming believers. You're part of this lineage and part of this legacy. So take your place in this great chain of believers who trust the authority of Christ, come what may. Your story probably won't be as well talked about or as long talked about as theirs, but it still matters. Just because it may not be famous doesn't mean it's not valuable. It's valuable to God, it's valuable to you, and it's also valuable to your church. Just think of all the women who got together and prayed for CIU before it existed. Many forgot, and I suspect you don't even know their names. And yet you sit in this chapel as part of their legacy of faith that they have left behind. 
Just because the earth might forget their names and their impact for the kingdom, it still stretches into China, into Iran, into every country, city, church, and family where a CIU graduate travels. That is their legacy. What will yours be? This is the message of the authority of Christ for the church as seen throughout church history. Whether the Lord propels you to prosperity and celebrity or poverty and ignominy, the power we all cling to is the power of the cross of Christ. Sin can be defeated in your life because sin has been defeated in Christ. You'll sin, but our sin is now because we love the lie. We're not enslaved to it anymore. I've made the mistake of relying on myself and underestimating Satan and sin. And I'm sure you have too. Be vigilant, but don't be fearful. And remember, Christian brother and sister, as I close, professor, pastor, president, provost, freshman, senior, admissions team, athletes, administrators, audiovisual tech, librarian, security team, husbands, wives, singles, arrogant, proud, humble, depressed, struggling. Failure isn't fatal. Your freedom comes by faith in the finished work of Christ. This is the cry of the church in every age. It's the cry of the church in our age. It's the cry of the church in CIU. It's the authority of Christ that reminds us, even in our darkest days, Christ is with us until the end of the age. So next generation of church history, are you ready to live in light of Christ's victory? Are you ready to cling to Christ's power and authority for your life? Will you stand up and be counted no matter the cost? Or will you allow yourselves to be enslaved by temporary, fleeting, and disappointing earthly priorities? Real success trusts in Christ for forgiveness, for freedom, and for fortitude. Real success is founded upon trust in Christ's cross that we are saved, proven by God's might in Christ's resurrection, and resting in God's authority as king over all, now and forevermore, in this age and the next. Lord God, we pray that we would rest on your mercy and holiness. Help us to cling to the final work of Christ on the cross as our only hope and only strength. Help us to find freedom in Christ Jesus. Help us to keep trusting you and avoid trusting in ourselves or the lies of this world. Help us when Satan's lies do assault us and depression's clouds assail us to remember that we are called and adopted by you as our Heavenly Father. We are sons and daughters bought by Christ, adopted by you, and sealed for your, by your Spirit. Take your gospel, sear it into our hearts, that it may fan into a flame of enthusiastic, excited, and glorious faith. And help us to be obedient wherever you call us to be. Do with us whatever you please. And we pray in Christ's name to whom we submit. Amen. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.